I'm Blake Hargreaves. Welcome to Future Stops. The music you're hearing is the premiere of a new work titled Voiceless Mass. The composer, Raven Chacon, whose musical palette encompasses the disparate universes of chamber music and caustic noise performance, now enters into the realm of church spaces with this his first work featuring the pipe organ. He brings to the instrument a unique perspective, as his first musical experience was traditional Navajo music. I grew up on the Navajo Reservation, which is about four hours west of Albuquerque. And the only musician in my family really is my grandpa. He sings a lot of traditional Navajo music. But um, I mean, that was kind of the early uh, experience with just hearing somebody play music. And uh, later on, the family moved to the the big city, Albuquerque. And I was about 10 years old or so. And uh, we met this woman who gave us piano lessons. And so I studied the piano at a young age. And, um, you know, I didn't stick with it too long i was i did about three or four years of that but uh what it did give me is you know that knowledge of reading notes you know and and applying it to learning other instruments so you know i eventually took that and taught myself to play the guitar you know or string instruments and so i was i was interested in just making sound you know and of course that extends to other kinds of things you try to build your own instruments and you know, cassette tapes were still something very ubiquitous back then. Experimenting with those, you know, taking them out of the case and putting them backwards, cutting, trying to cut them up and everything. Uh, yeah, just making music. And eventually I went and, and uh, enrolled in the university and, and studied more formally and did that all the way through a, through a master's degree. I ended up doing that at CalArts. And, you know, that was... That was something totally different. I mean, when I went into this, deciding to study formally, I mean, I, I had my own experiments I was doing, and, and I, I had been able to research a little bit about other things, you know, other 20th century music that was happening. But it wasn't until I went to California that I realized, oh, oh there's all these, you know, other people doing it on a kind of DIY level, you know. And, uh, you know, I was already making noise and doing this kind of thing. I didn't realize there was a, really a community of people doing this, though. And I, So I kind of had that that end of it while being out there. Also, I was studying with some, um, you know, some people I really enjoyed their music. James Tenney, Morton Sobotnik, Widata Leo Smith. All of these uh, these folks were the professors at CalArts where I would, did the MFA. So Well, it sounds like you always had a sort of unique perspective Um You've described your practice as researching instruments. What do you mean by that? Well, with with composition, I mean, I, I think I get this question a lot, you know, and sometimes you come upon uh, discussions with other composers or, you know, I share a concert with somebody. A lot of this discussion was when I was, you know, studying music too, about, you know, oh, you know, you suck emerging composers, young composers, established composers maybe you processing a, a bass clarinet through a max patch or something, or, you know, doing different kinds of affecting instruments. And to me, that that's not my reason for, for making chamber music or, or composing with those instruments. I still feel like I'm researching all of them. Like I, I don't know enough about them. Uh, you know, there's all, there's, there's shoot, hundreds of these, you know, instruments that have been used in, 
of course, the classical genre and, and wherever else they existed before that history. And so I'm still fascinated by that. I don't think the bass clarinet can be improved, you know, or, or at least for myself, I'm not finished exploring what they can do. So it's constantly trying to understand what they can do and, and learning, you know, through extended techniques. People are constantly developing extended techniques for these instruments. And, um, and just in appreciating how they're built, how they work, what they can do. And, uh, and even when maybe I feel like that's like I've learned, well, I, I'll never feel like I've learned enough, but, you know, then in combination with other instruments, all the amazing, you know, sounds and timbres and combinations that can come from that. And so, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's continuing work. Every time I take on a new chamber composition, it's probably because there's going to be an instrument involved that I, I haven't uh, written enough for or don't know enough about. And so in the case of this one I did recently for, for the pipe organ, you know, I know nothing about the pipe organ. I, I still feel like, I, of course, I mean, I, I learned quite a bit just to make the piece happen, but I feel like that's a whole universe in itself that uh, I hope to, to understand more and given another opportunity maybe to, if not work with this piece more, you know, do another one. Well, and, and how uh, did you find the organ in terms of like your goals with the piece and, um, and the result? not having worked with it before? Well, um, I mean, the, I guess my approach to it and having started on the piano uh, was not to write, you know, as if it was a piano. And, I, and I, I think I knew enough just from listening to other organ music, especially from the 20th century, um, that that was not the approach that I wanted to do and that this is a completely different instrument that doesn't have to be as if you were just going to write for a piano, you know, uh, writing for as if it was a piano was the last thing I wanted to do. I, instead, I was interested in all the different timbres that could happen. Um, I think, you know, a lot of this work, you know, and also my, my electronic or noise work is it kind of functions in the same way where there's maybe an exploration of the extreme low registers and high registers. You know, maybe at the same time. This was a piece that was, uh, it was commissioned by Present Music, wonderful new music organization in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And they do an annual Thanksgiving concert. And I think, uh, quite honestly, they, they probably felt an obligation to have uh, Indigenous voice in this. Um, myself, Navajo, coming from Navajo Nation, um, they knew of my work. And, but I, I think they were conflicted of having a Thanksgiving concert and uh, not, you know, not knowing what to, what to say with it. So they reached out for a piece. And I mean, hey, I have no thing, no problem with Thanksgiving. I love to eat on Thanksgiving, um, but of course, it has a complicated history. Not necessarily one that that um, affected my tribe directly, as we're more in the Southwest and we didn't have that encounter of the East Coast, like the uh, Wampanoag, Wampanoag, and some of these other tribes. But um, 
but still, um, taking on that invitation and saying, well, what, what can be said? And um, getting excited about being able to use the organ. They, they uh, had the venue of the uh, Cathedral of St. John the Evangelist in, in Milwaukee. And just starting to think about what all, you know, this combination of uh, events and the situation and the invitation would mean to, to write a piece for that. And so that, yeah, that was, that was the beginning of that. Not only does this work represent the first time Chacon writes for a provocative occasion like Thanksgiving, it also marks the first time he writes a work to be performed in a Christian church on an instrument with such a strong Christian identity, the pipe organ. Chacon confronted these provocations with research and contemplation. You know, I wanted to think about maybe the building, you know, where the organ was housed and thinking about the history of that. Um, but I was trying to find the earliest organ in the Americas, or at least in the United States. And I couldn't find any concrete um, information about that. But I did find one article where somebody was saying the earliest known organ in the United States was in 1610 uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, you know, in my, in my area, it's definitely one of the earliest uh, churches. Christian churches, a Catholic church. And so I was, I was trying to maybe think about that history and, and surely I'm going to be researching this more, but uh, you know, these, these, uh, this area of Northern New Mexico has this history of um, the, the conquistadors and the Spanish and the, the priests coming in and all operating together and enslaving the native people in, in northern New Mexico. Eventually, there was a, a revolt in 1680, um, which, you know, kind of uh, took back the land, undid a lot of um, some of the suppression that was happening. And I think the ultimate results of that is you have this, this community that's, you know, uh, wasn't, the indigenous community wasn't completely exterminated, but you know, there's a culture that's blended from Spanish and indigenous in this region. And, you know, of course, thinking of that history, I think there was, there was a starting point of, of considering then that this would be taking into account uh, the church and also thinking, well, how, how then are, are not only uh, music, how is music integrated inside of the building of the church? But then, you know, what are the opportunities for other voices in these churches? You know, it's usually a place of sermon. It's a place of silence a lot of times. I mean, it's a place to go and reflect, a place to go and pray. Myself, even growing up Catholic, um, half Catholic, I should say. <laughs> and, and uh and and thinking of that, you know, it's is uh, there's, there's voices. There's the voice from from God. There's there's the the, the non-voice, the the reflection, the silence, the praying, um, and 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 starting to think then um, about current times, you know, about uh, protest. A lot of that has been in my work recently. Of course, we had all these events, you know, uh, in the in the states and elsewhere, of people. Uh, you know, angry at you know, the police about the shootings, all these other events. There's, there's been a lot of things in Canada, you know, around the church, around the truth and reconciliation, uh, residential schools. 
And um, also back here in the Southwest, there was also going back to the history of the conquistadors, the taking down of statues uh, of those of that history. There's there's were quite a few statues for a conquistador named Oñate who was cutting off the feet, the I think it was the left foot of every uh, Pueblo man uh, here hundreds of years ago. So when they took down that the statue of him. Actually, a good friend and collaborator, musician and artist, uh, a friend of mine, was shot at this protest last summer. Insane things happening. And so, um, you know, for, for, for raising his voice. And, and so all of that went into this piece. All of that got me thinking, you know, and not just about the church. It's really thinking about spaces. I mean, this space could be a courtroom. As was all, uh, as was just sixty miles down the street from Milwaukee, you had that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. Also, happened. It actually came. The verdict came down while I was out there uh, two days before this piece premiered. Um, you had that in that region. You also had, um, you know, you have universities that pride itself on uh, an exchange of dialogue, but also thinking, well, what. Who can end up in those spaces? Who, who, you know, sometimes you have a university that is quite expensive to attend, you know, or or there's barriers that's not allowing, uh, you know, poor folks, folks, folks who can't afford it to go, to go into these spaces, and even when they're there, they might not feel that they can say what they want to say, and so it was it was really thinking about uh, you know space, buildings, um, gathering. You know what gathering can mean individually or as a group, and um, and also thinking also of the uh, mass. You know the the musical form of the mass, and and the history of that combined with uh, with the church with the organ. And so, how did you feel the uh, the organ played its role in your exploration of these issues with your piece? Yeah, it was. I mean, all. all you're right. Ultimately, I had to write the piece, <laughs> stop conceptualizing it, and uh, and and get to a point where, you know, what what can be. Well, first, I decided to call it voiceless mass, and there wasn't going to be any voice, actual voice in it. But I wanted to think, okay, well, maybe maybe some of these voice uh, instruments can actually sound like the human voice. And so, back to thinking about the organ. Uh, creating this kind of bed or structure or skeleton for the piece, then thinking of ways of maybe weaving around these, these other so-called voices into this, you know, the percussion kind of singing or, or you know, screeching, or even screaming at times with what it can do. The same with the flute. Um, and, and just kind of having this, this uh, harmonic basis as well. Um, I mean, I, this is something I don't know about, but I, I, I don't know how much I could have uh, done anything microtonally with the organ. But that was okay. I mean, uh, a lot of times, I'm not a, I'm not a huge tuning person, but I, a lot of the, the chamber music I make does uh, go to the, the quarter tone level. So the strings almost completely played with quarter tones. And I liked having that interplay between the fixed pitches of you know, uh, ju- uh, um, equal temperament pitches of the of the organ, and then having the the quarter tone off with the other instruments. And this was performed obviously in a church. 
Um, so how do you feel the space uh, played its role in, uh, in terms of this piece that, you know, had, uh, in a way, a, a sacred meaning? Um, and you're, you're in, a, you're in a, sac- a space designated as sacred by the people who use it. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I'm, I was completely honored to be able to, you know, have this, this piece be in dialogue with, with the space. And um, the open the open mindedness of um, the cathedral of Saint John the Evangelist and and the folks that steward the organ also you know were very helpful in in uh, just making the entire work happen. I think the community there also appreciated that discussion. So um, so that was it. And and it's not that I have a you know a, a solution or anything like that. But the, what art can do is you know bring bring up these these beginnings of a conversation perhaps. And, you know, for me, that's, if a, if a chamber piece can accomplish that, that's, that's huge for me. I mean, and and that's maybe what I seek in, in music sometimes, you know, at the same time, music doesn't have to do any of that. Music can just exist. And so, um, so the space itself, I mean, just if you're talking about the acoustics of the space, uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, and, and and there's two organs that are being used in this. Uh, I don't know enough about how this works, but they were, I, guess, I suppose, daisy-chained. And so you would hear it on both ends. You would hear the organ that's in the apse, and you would hear the other one on, on the other side. And so just to the, the way that it would fill the entire space. And, you know, for myself, I mean, I, I wrote the piece without having the ability to go out there and not only work with the organ, but hear the space itself. So that was always, you know, that was a little scary up until the time we actually got to rehearse in there. And as I say, that the organ was the the foundation of the work. I mean, it, it couldn't have been any other way. This overpowered, if it wanted to, everything else in the space. So what that led me to do, I mean, the assumption that that was going to happen led me to uh, write this instruction into the piece that the other instruments should be separated and spaced out around the space. They, they were not going to be in a traditional configuration cluster on a stage, for instance, the only way they were really going to be heard is if they were dispersed within the space, because the organ is so powerful, the organ is so encompassing. And conceptually, I mean, that was, that was, also important because of talking about perhaps individual voices, the meaning of that, you know, what, what that means to, to have an individual voice amongst others or to contribute, you know, in the round or, or in a, you know, in a, in a circle, it's a speaking circle, talking circle. Well, I found, I found the, the tension in the piece, you know, um, really spoke to, um, the timelessness of the subject and the gravity of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with you know the way it came out. I'm you know I'm trying to think of ways to do it again, and uh, you know of course it was written uh, specifically for the organ that is is there at at that cathedral. But I my my next uh, thing I got to learn is you know what what how do I adapt it? You know I'm know what is common amongst uh, a lot of these organs and um yeah and and what can be changed i'm i'm also not the type of composer that 
is too sacred about the the score itself in some ways or the composition itself. I mean, I, I feel like there should be some fluidity built into all of these things that I make.
You're listening to the Future Stops podcast, an initiative of the Royal Canadian College of Organists. My name is Blake Hargreaves, and I'm your host as we explore the world of the 21st century organ. We just heard today's feature piece, an excerpt of Voiceless Mass by Raven Chacon, recorded in Milwaukee as part of Present Music's annual Thanksgiving concert. Besides being a composer and performer, Raven Chacon is an installation artist whose works have been exhibited as part of the Whitney Biennial, the Sydney Biennale, and at the Montreal Contemporary Art Museum. Chacon was a member of the Native American art collective Post Commodity, contributing to their internationally exhibited multimedia installations. He also is one of the earliest members of the Native American Composers Apprenticeship Project, serving as composer-in-residence since 2004. That's a project that started in the year 2000. There's an annual festival out there called the Grand Canyon Music Festival, uh, mostly chamber music festival that happens. Uh, it's actually been happening since the 80s. And uh, around the year 2000 or so, they started this education project. You know, of course, they are on Navajo and Hopi and uh, Supai lands where the Grand Canyon is. And they they came to the realization, yeah, maybe we should <laughs> you know, engage with this community, which which I'm grateful for. They they actually it was founded with um, composer Brent Michael Davids. He's a he's a native composer from uh, Mohican tribe. So he's not from the the region, but um, he thought up this idea to to write string quartets with uh, the young students there at those schools. And so he did it for a year. And I, I eventually, um, they said, you know, we should get a composer from the region, if any exist. I mean, granted, even still, I mean, there's, I can count the amount of indigenous composers in the United States on two hands. You know, there's probably 10 of us. And back 20 years ago, there was four of us. And so um, they had learned about my work. I mean, I was, I was only maybe you know, 25 or so back then, but uh, they brought me out. And, um, and so that, that's the project. The project is, is, well, they had started with with one school, but, uh, when I joined on, I said, you know, I want to teach students from the town I grew up in, which is Chinle, Arizona, near Canyon de Chez. And it was an opportunity to expand. And, um, the project is that I go out to these schools, usually for about a week and give students, maybe about ten, five to ten students, the assignment of writing a three-minute string quartet. And so with the, with the schools that, where they have a music program, it's fairly easy. I go in and, and I show them everything I know about the strings that I can in a day. You know, extended techniques, all this stuff, you know. You know, how to get sound out of it, how to bow, all these things. And... Um, they start writing, you know, and I show them the different clefs they'll have to write in. You know, a student might only know treble clef, so I show them the other one. And and then, yeah, we, we try to um, also talk about what music they know or they, they've been listening to. You know, it, it might encompass traditional tribal music. Uh, a lot of these kids are like me. They, they, they listen to heavy metal or whatever, you know. <laughs> or, you know, some kids are, you know, hip-hop or whatever. So all of that ends up, I think, is that they, it all ends up in their piece somehow. Um, the schools where they don't have a music program, I have to show them what a whole note is, where middle C is, what middle C is. And sometimes, you know, they only have a week. I've had students write 
an entire composition with just whole notes and maybe just middle C. One student just did, yeah, middle C and all whole notes, maybe some half notes. But that composition went through, you know, all the timbres that were possible. And then that's what, and then that student does it the next year and then knows more, knows what the process is, tries different things, has been thinking about it for a year. I think we've, I've probably taught about 300 kids to do this. Oh, since 2004. And, uh, and so I'm trying to make an archive that has all of these scores and recordings on there. And a really beautiful thing out of this, that very first year when Brent was teaching students, he only started with like four or five. Uh, he taught a young composer out in Tuba City named Michael Begay. And uh, when I started in 2004, um, I needed help just wrangling these students. And he was still in the area and he, he became my assistant. And now he co-teaches the thing with me. He's co-composer. And he's getting his uh, music degree at Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore now. So, so yeah, he's come up and uh, he's doing this thing now too. Raven Chacon's voiceless mass represents a novel and intriguing combination of theme and venue. The music's stillness and tension invites a refined and precise definition of hope. Creating a mass with no liturgical text offers a broad vista to those looking for an alternative use for sacred spaces, whose role is changing but whose possibilities are no less important in our lives as they were when these structures were built. As these spaces confront the silence of new occupants, they get closer to the true definition of sacred. As written in the description, quote, Though mass is referenced in the title, the piece contains no audible singing voices, instead using the openness of the large space to intone the constricted intervals of the wind and string instruments. In exploiting the architecture of the cathedral, voiceless mass considers the futility of giving voice to the voiceless when seating space is never an option for those in power. We'd like to thank Raven Chacon for joining us today. We'd love it if you would join us too on social media at Future Stops and Future Stops Podcast, where you can bring your voice to the conversation. Future Stops is a podcast from the Royal Canadian College of Organists produced by Andrew O'Connor with Sanjay Parker as community manager and executive producer Elizabeth Shannon. I'm your host, Blake Hargreaves. <laughs>